0: Focus your questions on the sponsor. Do the work once and get paid forever. You find a good sponsor you do your due diligence on them, they'll make you money forever if you're an accredited investor.
1: Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I'm pleased and honored to be introducing you to Trevor McGregor. You recognize his name. He's been on the show multiple times. Just search Trevor McGregor, Joe Fairless, and you'll hear his interviews that I did with him. And He has a lot of value during those interviews. Well, he's had a lot of value in my life. For the last five years, I have hired him to be a consultant to help me with my real estate business and just personal stuff too as a life slash business coach. And he's taken my game to a different level. Before I hired him, I had four single family homes. And oh, by the way, I was also single. Fast forward to today, my company controls over $300 million worth of real estate. And I am happily, happily married. Clearly, results are going to vary. But he has helped me in five years do things that I didn't even have on my radar. So I suggest that you speak to Trevor McGregor if you're looking to take your real estate investing business to the next level. If you've had success and are looking to build on that success, then he's your guy. Go to trevormcgregor.com or coachwithtrevor.com and you'll be able to apply for a conversation with him, coachwithtrevor.com. We used to do a free consultation. We got too many free consultations, and he actually is pretty full with his consulting program, and he's very conscientious about the value that he adds. He wants to add tremendous value, so he's being very selective with people who he does work with. So go to coachwithtrevor.com and apply to have a conversation with him, and then you two can decide if it makes sense to work together or not and hire him as a consultant. It has impacted my life in a tremendously positive way. Him and his wife have gone to my wedding. Trevor's been in my conference a couple years, and I know him well, and I suggest that you get to know him as well. CoachWithTrevor.com Best ever, listeners. How you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. John Bogdasarian, how you doing, John? I'm doing great. Well, that's great to hear. Nice to have you on the show. A little bit about John. He is the president of Promanus Group, a real estate investment firm. He began with nine initial investors and has strategically guided the firm to serving over 300 investors today. They've got ownership in multiple entities with more than 2 million square feet of industrial warehouse and distribution space, and has well over 1 million square feet of office space. He's got his CCIM designation, had it for 1999 to 2018. What is that math? That is about 20, is that almost 20 years I'm that old. Holy moly. Well, that's crazy. 1990 is almost 20 years. Based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So with that being said, John, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah. I
0: started out as a residential agent. So I was actually just a broker selling houses. And I started figuring out very quickly that I was always working myself out of a job. So Uh, You only got to eat what you killed. And I started buying single family homes and I built a portfolio of about 20 single family homes doing very low down and even zero down type deals because I, of course, didn't have any money. And that's where I really cut my teeth was in that real estate residential arena. And then after a while, the deals got bigger and I found some things that made sense, but I didn't, again, have all the money to do it. So that's when I started syndicating deals And I didn't really have any idea. I was sort of figuring it out. There's a lot of information out there today. And and it's really interesting that I've been on a few podcasts. This is a great one. I've listened to a number of your episodes. And back then, there was nowhere to learn this process. I just kind of conjured it and just kept doing deals and figuring it out and getting a little bigger. And then really started taking on investors in earnest in about 2005, We really only work with accredited investors, so that's mostly what I can speak to is what makes a smart investor and what they should focus on and things like that. But I did the whole do-it-yourself, start from nothing as well. So if that's of interest to anybody, I can certainly speak to that. But mostly what we do now is we purely represent accredited investors. We put deals together, fund development deals, acquisitions. We run a major portfolio and we just distribute out cash pro rata. I like to say we make rich people richer.
1: Well, let's talk about that because the best ever listeners tend to have some deals under their belt, got a lot of passive accredited investors on as listeners, and then have people who are syndicating deals or wanting to syndicate deals. They have bought those homes similar to what you did starting out, and they want to go larger. So let's focus on what you're doing now versus how you got started and some things that might be of interest. So what's the most challenging question an accredited investor asks you? You know,
0: the scary thing about it is, to be honest with you, is that I don't get many questions anymore. Most of our investors are direct referrals and they hear about it. Hey, I heard from Bob that you make him money and can I get a couple shares and here's a couple hundred grand and do you have any questions? No, I don't know anything about this stuff. And that actually is the worst thing I get, are no questions. In terms of tough questions, I would say the toughest questions are easily answered at this point in time. I wouldn't say there are any difficult questions. There are good questions, that's for sure. And oh, I, good, I, I,
1: good, good distinction. What are some good questions?
0: So some of the best questions I get, and this is what I've discovered about the smartest investors that I have, all of them, hands down. Almost all of their questions are about me, the person representing the deal, my background, my track record, my motivation, and not as much about the deal itself. So the good questions are kind of things along the lines of why are you doing this project and what do you see the likely outcome of it being? What is the worst case scenario? What's the worst deal you've ever done? Where did you learn to do what you do and how? They're not focusing on pedigree and what university I attended or anything like that. They're focusing on experience and where I am in life and what my overall deal philosophy is. We tend to take very much a preservation of capital strategy first. We want to know that our worst case scenario is that potentially our equity gets locked up in a deal for longer than we'd like and maybe we end up accepting a lower rate of return this actually has not happened, but we kind of look at it like that's what could happen. So we're very much into trying to set expectations and temper them and look at the downside of a deal. And And those are the best questions I think I get from people or those types of things, if that makes sense. I'll tell what, you
1: some worst questions I get too. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to write that down that we're going to get to the worst questions because you've piqued my curiosity for sure. But I do want to ask a follow-up question on the types of deals that you do. How about we take a step back and talk about the types of deals you do? Because for other syndicators or aspiring syndicators, and then also for passive investors, it'd be interesting to know how you're able to have a good return for your investors But then the worst case scenario is equity gets locked up versus you lose it all, then there's a capital call, then you lose that, and then everyone's upset. Sure. Well, to speak to the asset, we don't really
0: focus on a specific asset class or a geographical location. We're really situationally driven is what I like to say. And what I mean by that is I've done single family homes, obviously I had a big portfolio of those at one point in time that I sold actually earlier this year, apartment complexes, small retail properties that were more service-based businesses, ground lease deals where we own the ground and lease the land to restaurants like McDonald's, TGI Fridays, Joe's Crab Shacks, Applebee's. We owned a number of Applebee's at one point in time, special purpose buildings. We've done bowling alleys. I owned a bowling alley in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Don Carter, all-star lanes. If anybody's listening from Baton Rouge, they'll know Don Carter. I know um, Don Carter
1: from Fort Worth. There's a Don Carter's in Fort Worth. Is there? Yeah. So yeah. There used to be. Fam- I don't think very, there is anymore. <laughs> very
0: famous bowler back in the day, but uh, I'm not a
1: bowling guy really. I'm
0: only for entertainment and my kids' birthday parties now. So we have industrial, we have multi-tenant office, we have single-tenant office, we have hospitality, we're building a hotel. We do acquisitions of existing properties. We build from the ground up. I've done office condominium projects, residential condominium projects, land splits, subdivisions. So really no two deals are anywhere close to being the same to each other from an asset type or whatever, but situationally, they're all the same. Situationally, what we're doing is we're structuring a deal whereby we have many layers of protection before our equity is at risk. And what I mean by that, I'll give you a quick example on a condo deal we're doing right now, where a guy, and so you know, we don't always act as the principal developer. So for the younger people starting out doing deals, we're a very good source to developers all over the country. We have people we're working with in Denver, Nashville, Florida, where they have a project teed up, they have it ready to go or not ready to go. Maybe they just have it concept ready and they need the money to get it through the approval process and get it built and do whatever. So what we will do is come in and we'll say, all right, it's like I, John Bogdasarian, and am the investor. I negotiate a deal with them and say, I'll provide all the money and here's how we do it. And if they like our proposal, which 99 times out of hundred, they do then boom we get involved together and we go forward and do this deal and then I'm accountable to my group of three or four hundred investors is about where we are now. And we put the package together, syndicate it, put it out and put the shares out. So we're between those two groups essentially. And so an example of how I would structure something like this is our Kingsley condos we're building in downtown Ann Arbor right now. A guy comes to me, the land's worth four million dollars, let's say and we wanna build these condos on it and sell it and everything else. And I said, what kind of debt do you have on the property? And let's say they have a million and a half of debt on the property. I say, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll close on the land, we'll pay you the million and a half, but you've gotta contribute the other 2.5 to the deal, and you get that once we get the return of our equity. So let's say we have to put eight, $10 million in equity into that project. We go, we build this thing. We have another, let's say, 20, million dollars of bank debt paired with that. We go, we build it, we sell condos. We first use the condo sales to pay the bank. We then use the condo sales to pay back all of our investor capital first, then he gets the balance of his land. So he's risking his land against that. And then his profits also come at the end as well. So essentially we have multiple layers of what I call protection before we get eroded. The only thing that's ever in front of us is the bank and the lender. And I would say it is possible to go out and put something up and over leverage and build into a bad market and lose the money. The worst case scenario is always you lose all your money. My investors don't sign personal guarantees on our debt or anything, so they could lose all their money. But for that to happen, with us putting 35, 40% down on a project, and projecting a pretty massive profit on the back end, the profit has to erode, then a lot of things have to go away before we're losing our money. Typically, we have a certain number of pre-sales that would pay the bank down to a number that's good enough so that even if we were stuck with 20 units, We could just refi the bank out of that position or I have enough cash around myself typically that I could just pay the bank off and charge some nominal 5% interest only while we rent those units out and wait for the market to come back to sell those units. And sometimes that can be a long wait. In 2006, I was selling my single family home portfolio as fast as I could. I could only get rid of so many. And then the market tanked in 2007 and I just sold the rest of them all in the spring of 2017. So that temporary setback lasted 10 years. But the good news is they were rented the whole time and there was plenty of income behind them. So there was something back in them. I didn't lose any money. I just lost net worth on paper.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's kind of an example of he, how we would put something he, together. That's helpful. I love that you went through a specific case study. And with your deals, I and mean, you've got how many going on at one time? That kind of depends on the season and the time of year, but typically about five or six
0: is about where we are right now. It used to be we'd have one at a time, one acquisition, we'd be doing one deal because it was me and an assistant and one other guy. And now I have a team and an investor relations department and a marketing department and a lead asset manager and a chief operating officer and a chief financial officer with people reporting to all these people. So as the organization's grown, we've been able to do more. Right now we're kind of at my comfort level. I don't ever like to get too many cards out on the table or too many chips I should say out on the table without seeing some of them coming back in and seeing things being realized. So We started getting into development about three years ago and I started testing it with small projects, 18 townhomes. It was a small, I think six or $8 million deal. We did total deal size. And then once we saw that work and we saw how the numbers came in and then we would expand and do two or three more in that particular market, higher level deals. And then right now though, we could handle way more than six. I need two or three months to see the sales going and the lease up and so forth. So we just don't like to get overextended. We want to be able to back this stuff up if for some reason it's not working out as we originally projected, which again, knock on wood, we haven't had that happen, but it can.
1: With that case study, I I was taking notes and trying to get some of the core pieces, but it would be helpful if you can summarize when you go into a deal, since as you said, no two deals are the same. So you look at risk mitigation and capital preservation Mm -hmm. What do you make sure is in place for every deal so that you have capital preservation at the forefront?
0: So another example, I can't remember who it was, but on one of your shows, you had a guy who bought apartment complexes and it kind of blew my mind because he was buying like 50 units and less. And I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't work. You gotta have 100 to 200. But he said something in there that was critical. He said, you know, the fact is, is the management fee... The cost to manage these things and maintain these things is way higher, yes. But if you put that number into the deal, it's okay because you've got enough to do it. And that's a mistake I made at one point in time. I bought an 84-unit apartment complex and I realized I got to pay a full-time manager. I got to pay a full-time maintenance guy. And the only reason I was able to make that work was because I owned a ton of single-family homes in that same area and I had them run all those as well so I could diversify their costs. But that was a lesson. So I would say basically on an acquisition, the layers of protection we put in there, a broker will tell you you need 15 cents a foot per year as a reserve on an industrial building. We put a dollar a foot per year in there as a reserve. And that's even if we have like a 15-year absolute net lease, we still put a buck a foot in there to accrue over the life of our hold period. Small tenant office buildings, $2 a foot as a reserve because you've got build-outs, TI, leasing commissions, it's expensive. So we'll put hefty reserves in there. We have not only a property management fee that pays for really managing the property, but we also have an asset management fee because we're running 300 investors and reporting to them and doing other things. So these are things that we could theoretically live without if we had to, without missing projections to investors. We could cut those back. We wouldn't want to do that, but they are layers of protection that we put into the deal. It's kind of like a godfather. You want to sit in the place where you can see the exit. We pretty much want to see the exit. And I know you're going to get to some questions about some of the most important lessons or mistakes or Mm -hmm. things, which because you ask good questions on your shows and I've heard them. But for the most part, these are the types of projections we put in there or protections we put in there. Another one is just knowing that having the trust of my investors and being able to say, look, we came across a deal, for instance, on a hotel, and we had originally projected that 10 million would be enough equity to get the hotel built, based on the loan quotes we had. And we had a lender basically change the terms of the loan on us the last minute, and they wanted us to put in three more million dollars of equity. So I just created a mezzanine piece. I had plenty of mezzanine lenders that would have loaned that three million. But we don't do mezzanine loans because they tend to be predatory lenders and we certainly don't want to risk our capital with an extra lender and they have pretty high fees and so forth. So what we do is create a short-term loan opportunity for our members and say, look, we have this loan, let's say, for twenty-five million, and we really need twenty-eight. So we have an opportunity here where the members can loan three million dollars temporarily, and once the thing's built and stabilized, the lender will extend that extra three million out and we can pay you back. In addition to that, I've never had to make a capital call. Like I said, I hope I don't. But if I did and it made sense, it wouldn't be very difficult for me on any one of our deals to double the money that we've got in it in about 24 hours. So that's why we try and go smaller, grow slower than we can. So I know, for instance, if I put four million dollars in a deal and that represents 30 percent down and the bank gets squirrely or we can't sell units, I can just raise another four million and boom, pay the lender down to some stupid number or raise a little more and pay them off, and we can own it free and clear. because again, we're not building things in farm fields for special uses. We're going city infill, where demand is far outweighing
1: supply, and it's just a matter of time if there's any setback at all for us to hit our numbers. Is the asset management the same across different types of asset classes? It varies, but it's similar. I don't
0: like property management. I'll be honest with you. I'm not a day-to-day operations guy. I like to say I have a lot of RAM, but I don't have a giant CPU. (laughs) I can figure things out very quickly and make quick work of stuff. But on a day-to-day basis, day in and day out, dealing with managerial tasks is very challenging for me. So I initially tried to outsource all property management and was really disappointed, frankly, at the level of service we got and reviewing the expenses. And so, one of my best friends came on board years and years ago and is now my business partner. And he's the director of operations, and he is an incredible day to day, eye on the ball, management mindset. So, we complement each other very, very well. And we've taken all management in house and we've been able to shave costs substantially, which it doesn't always actually make us more money because a lot of our properties are triple net and even absolute net leases. But in some cases, we've been able to save our tenants a dollar or even two dollars a square foot on their pass-throughs. And when it comes time for a lease renewal or negotiation, we can point to that and say, "Hey, you know, we need a 50 cent per square foot bump here, but look, we've saved you a dollar fifty a foot on your expenses." So it does
1: eventually pass through to us and it's just good business. I guess I was asking that question because I'm just wondering what is an asset management fee, not property, but an asset management fee for office versus industrial versus apartment community versus hotel?
0: Oh, okay. So I get it. Asset management fee is very similar across all the assets. So the property management fee itself covers Property management. So if we have an office building, the property management fees are higher because there are salaries that are attributed to those buildings. So the buildings themselves pay the expense of running the buildings and property management is not really a profit center for us. It's just basically a break even to manage all these properties. The asset management fee, which theoretically should be a profit for us, is not really a profit for us either. It just covers office overhead and salaries. And it's basically allows us to break even. We might be slightly positive now. I think we crossed over from losing money. When I started out, it was like a $50,000 a month drain. So every time we closed a deal, I'd make a commission and pay off a line of credit at the bank and then start drawing it back out again to get to the next deal. This happened from 2009 all the way to Really, actually, it started in 2005, I guess, all the way through probably 2015 is when we got to the point where our global asset management fees, property management fees, everything, we just started breaking even on that probably about 2015. And it's kind of interesting because the acquisitions market has really dried up. We haven't really bought anything in the last year, so we haven't really added asset management fees. We do now have developer fees on deals. That's another layer of protection. We have these big developer fees on these projects we're doing, but we don't charge those. So far, we haven't charged those as we've been building the project. We don't draw them out. We let them accrue and we wait until the end and make sure that we're going to be able to return 100% of investor capital, pay the bank off and give people their PREF return before we draw that money out. Legally, we can take it, but so far we have not. We just accrue it because again, it's just a protection mechanism. And just,
1: just so I know, your asset management fee is or is not the same on a hotel versus an apartment.
0: It's the same as a percentage. We just, in our PPM and our subscription agreement, we reserve the right to charge up to, I think it's up to 6% of the net operating income of the property as a asset management fee. And sometimes it's all of that 6% and sometimes it's half of that. We kind of look at it and say, is this thing causing us a bunch of headaches and hassles and so forth? And what I will say to young syndicators and to investors is that it's very, very important that you operate with 100% transparency. So all of these things are explained, outlined, they're part of the prospectus, they're in the PPM, and all our returns that we project and calculate to investors are net of every fee that can be charged. I just think you have to do that. There's no reason not to. If the deal's that bad that you got to hide stuff, then you don't want to be doing it anyway.
1: Makes sense. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? Focus your questions on the sponsor. Do the
0: work once and get paid forever. You find a good sponsor, you do your due diligence on them, they'll make you money
1: forever if you're an accredited investor. What's the worst question that you receive? Because I mentioned we'd get back to that. What's the worst question? The single worst question...
0: I get is a statement and it would be a statement about a certain market or somebody not thinking something's going to sell or whatever. It's it's someone second guessing what I know. And I'm interested in the input and I'll listen, but the reality is I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing and (laughs) they should be coming to me and not doing it
1: themselves. (laughs) All right. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. Let's go. So First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you want to hire the guy who I hire to help me with my real estate investing business, then go to coachwithtrevor.com. That's coachwithtrevor.com. The Real Estate Innovators Podcast explores innovation in commercial real estate technology, design, and development. They celebrate the companies and innovators who are changing the business of commercial real estate and are inspiring the future of how we work, live, and play. Find out more at the realestateinnovators.com. All right. Best ever book you've read? Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. Best ever deal you've done that we haven't talked about already?
0: By far and away, a deal called Crown Point. We bought a building for $3.6 million. The investors made an 18% return in six months. And then I sold the property two years later for $11.3 million and split the profits 50-50 with the guy who brought me the deal.
1: And the investors made 18% because there was a refi and you cashed them out or how, we how it We bought it all
0: cash, closed in seven days. The investors got all their money back plus 18% in six months. And then they were out of the deal. We don't typically do that. We would like to keep the investors in the deal. But the guy who brought me the deal, that was a condition of the deal was that the investors got their 18% and they were out. And then he and I owned the deal together. He didn't want a lot of investors, but- the investor made 18% in six months, so everybody was happy.
1: But we what, took a $3.5 million cap gain on it. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction?
0: Biggest mistake I've ever made is two of them. One is not doing enough due diligence up front. And the other one is being too creative and too tricky and getting something done and closed that other people cannot get done and closed. And then I was trapped in it. So a quick example, I bought a six-unit Nobody could get commercial financing. Once you go over four units, you might as well go to 400. (laughs) So I got a six unit done because I have the credit and I could just get it done with a bank on a line of credit. And then when I went to sell it, I couldn't get it sold because nobody could buy it.
1: Best ever way you like to give back?
0: My favorite is my wife's charity called the Generosity Project. And we also like the 242 Community Center here in Michigan. And they've opened multiple church slash community centers throughout Michigan and the country, but org.
1: And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you?
0: Best place is ir at promanas.com,
1: P-R-O-M-A-N-A-S.com
0: or lisa at promanas.com.
1: Your website is promanas.com, right? And that will be in the show notes. So, best of listeners, you can click on that and go check out John's group. John, thank you for being on the show, talking to us about your career and what deals you've done, how you approach your potential deals from your situationally driven, not focused on an asset class or a location, and how you apply that so that you are mitigating the risk and being focused on capital preservation with your deals, regardless of the type of asset class it's in or location. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have the best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. The Real Estate Innovators Podcast explores innovation in commercial real estate technology, design, and development. They celebrate the companies and innovators who are changing the business of commercial real estate and are inspiring the future of how we work, live, and play. Find out more at therealestateinnovators.com.